Good morning, everybody. Sorry. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Third time's a charm. All right, here we go. We are in Revelation chapter nine, and we are going to start in verse number one. Just kind of recapping a little bit because it has been a bit since we've been going through the book together. It's been a couple weeks, um, but in chapter 8, we looked at the first four trumpet judgments. We looked into the details, how they're going to affect the environment, how they're going to affect people. We talked about their timing, and we also talked about how they're very fitting. Each trumpet judgment seems to be somewhat ironic. I mean, I don't want to read into the text what's not there, but... For example, the great mountain burning with fire being cast into the sea. Mountains in scripture, especially in the book of Daniel, represent kingdoms. And so it seems to be a very powerful illustration. It is a literal judgment, but it seems to illustrate that God is going to take that mountain of Babylon, that kingdom of Babylon, what man builds, man's pride, man's idolatry. He's going to cast that down and mankind as a result will be experiencing the temporal wrath of the Lord on earth. And so anyways, we talked about that in chapter eight. Now in chapter nine, we're going to look at a couple of the church, uh, excuse me, a couple of the trumpet judgments that are demonic in nature. And they are called the woes in chapter eight, verse 13. The last verse we read was, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is an angel flying in the midst of heaven. The angel says, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. And so the three woes would be the last three trumpet judgments. And we'll talk about the witnesses because in Revelation chapter 11, it ties their ministry into the latter part of the trumpet judgments. Whenever the Antichrist rises to power, uh, the beast that ascends from the bottomless pit, what does that mean? All that stuff will go into it a later time. But right now, let's look at the fifth trumpet judgment. So in verse number one, it says, and the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. So first off, clearly, we're not talking about a literal star. We're talking about an angel. And since this is a star which has fallen from heaven to earth, this is a fallen angel. There's going to be more clues later on in the text, which will, I believe, point to the fact that this is the devil. But I could say already that this is very similar to Isaiah chapter 14. So when it talks about Lucifer as a fallen star, morning star which has fallen this is very similar to that and most people point that out if you're doing your own study looking up different commentaries there does seem to be a connection between the language employed here and Isaiah chapter 14 but it says to him was given the key to the bottomless pit so a lot of people when they think of the devil let's clear up some misconceptions when they think of the devil they think of him as like the lord of hell that is completely wrong and it, I'm surprised that it's so prevalent because there's nothing at all in scripture to support it. There's, there's not even a single verse to suggest that. So it shows you that the people that think that don't read the 
that. That's right. I mean, I think a lot of people get their angelology, their demonology. They, they get it from culture. They get it from TV. They get it from songs, a lot of art, um, tradition that goes back to the Catholic Church, Jewish tradition. These are things that developed over time. They didn't appear all at once. And people just assume, hey, that sounds biblical. It sounds like Bible stuff, the devil, God, heaven, hell. So they just assume that it's in there, but it's not. Yeah, and, and in paganism, like uh, Katie just said, uh, Hades is the lord of the underworld. A lot of people see him as... Yeah, there, there are some Satanists who worship the devil, uh, which is very alarming, and it's growing in popularity. But in, um, in the Bible, the devil is not in hell. He doesn't want to be anywhere near hell. Uh, I think that the devil has convinced himself that he has a fighting chance, but I think he does know deep down, just like even the atheist knows deep down there's a God. He knows deep down that God is really who he says he is. And so heaven um, is closed off to him for the most part. He can make temporary appearances as seen in the book of Job. But as far as hell, there's no reason for the devil to go there at all unless he's doing something like this, this strategic releasing soldiers that will fight with him in his war against God. But he's roaming to and fro on earth. Whenever God asked the devil what he's been doing in Joe chapter one, wandering the earth, going up and down in the midst of it. And so that's where he is. Same thing is said uh, by Peter. He, he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's here. Okay. He's probably working in the highest levels of government. Um, he's trying to shape culture. He's trying to start movements, whatever he can do to, to change, uh, history. That is what he's employed himself in. And he's got lots of soldiers that are under him. He's got a hierarchy. I'm sure there are generals and there are officers and there are foot soldiers. And, you know, he hands down those orders, but, uh, he is actively opposing God. Um, in this war. And there's a lot that we don't see. That's why revelation I think is so fascinating to people. And there's a lot of potential to misunderstand God in the heavenly realm and the spiritual realm. Um, if you go into revelation and you see it primarily as an authoritative source, uh, or not authoritative. That's not the word. It's always authoritative, but a comprehensive. That's the word I'm looking for. It's not a comprehensive source for information on the supernatural. Uh, it's apocalyptic. Okay. Everything is flashing here and there. John is seeing very quick images. He's being given information, but that information's limited. Sometimes he's given information that he is not at liberty to disclose. So later when it talks about the thunders, we'll get to that later on. He hears the thunders, he understands what they mean, but he is instructed by an angel to not disclose that information. So Revelation is a book that does reveal a lot, obviously, hence the name, but we shouldn't go into this book or any book of the Bible and think that we're going to get all the details that we want to get about the angelic realm. So we need to avoid, I think, as best we can, speculation. We all want to, you know, we have tons of questions and we're interested and that interest isn't a bad thing. I mean, after all, we are created in God's image. We're interested in the supernatural. Um, I think that's how the devil can easily deceive people through paganism is by giving them what they're seeking. They want information on the supernatural and they're getting that 
through the wrong avenues. They're not getting it through the Bible, or at least they're getting it through perverted versions of the Bible that, that twist scripture. There are, are a lot of people who, listen, I've had conversations with people and they'll say, oh yeah, I believe in the Bible, but then they'll start talking about the book of Enoch and about this and that. And I'm just like, clearly this person is not grounded in the word of God. So the devil will use whatever he can to, to get people off track. Um, if it's getting these people unhealthily interested in the supernatural, he'll do that. So we as Christians, we cannot deny and we should not deny the supernatural nature of scripture. Uh, if it's in the Bible, it's free game, but let's not go beyond what's written. So right here, the devil is given permission to set free these demonic soldiers. He is going to use these demonic soldiers to judge unbelievers. Now, as far as whether or not believers are affected by the fifth judgment, uh, we'll read it in a second. It involves people being stung, but not killed. Will that affect believers? The Bible doesn't actually tell us one way or the other. Now we know based on verses elsewhere, like the book of Matthew, uh, first John has some relevant material, uh, that a Christian can't be demon possessed. However, we know that in the book of Job, Job was physically affected by the devil. I mean, he had the boils covering his body and his life was ruined by the devil because God gave him permission. So who will be affected by this? Well, if we're keeping to the word in chapter nine, it really is focusing on the unbelievers who are unrepentant, uh, those who are worshiping idols. So I think that we should just be careful and say, while it's possible that it will affect more than just that group, let's stick with that right now. Let's not go beyond what's written again. Uh, it seems to be that this is predominantly aimed at unbelievers trying to get them to repent because they don't die. When they get stung, they don't die. God is trying to give them chance. another chance. Very good. And so anyways, we have this angel. Again, I'll show you why I think it's the devil in a minute, but he's given the key to the bottomless pit. And this, finally, it proves that the devil is limited. The devil can do a lot of things if he was allowed to do those things. But even the devil has his hands tied to an extent. And what's amazing is this applies even to unbelievers. That means man mankind in general is not affected by the devil, even if they're lost, as much as he could affect them. So right now, the Holy Spirit's restraining the devil. Um, I think that that's proved by some verses that talk about demons being chained in the abyss. Uh, there was a sin in the days of Noah before the flood, Genesis chapter six, fallen angels were mixing with mankind and producing these Nephilim offspring, which are giants. Okay. They're not doing that now. Okay. They were imprisoned. And while I think that we have indications that that may resume in the days of the tribulation, I mean, it does say when the son of man returns, it will be as the days of Noah. So whenever that restraining influence of the Holy Spirit is removed, it could be that they will be doing those things. Um, it's theorized. It is a theory, but I think it's a, a really good theory. Um, Arnold Frutenbaum, who's a Hebrew scholar, Messianic Jew, he argues that when Revelation compares the Antichrist as the son of the devil, you have that satanic trinity, you got the dragon, you got the beast, and then you have the false prophet, and the beast, the Antichrist, is like the son in that satanic trinity. He thinks that that probably goes beyond just, you know, a mere parallel or metaphor. He thinks that it, it may actually be literal because in Genesis chapter 3, it talks about the seed of the serpent. And then it talks about the seed of the woman. Now, Jesus was literally the seed of the woman. 
He, he was literally the offspring of Mary. Well, if we're going to apply that literally there, there's good reason to apply it literally when it applies to the devil. Now, if we were just left with that verse, we probably would feel uncomfortable applying it literally. And that wouldn't be unreasonable. However, when we have Genesis chapter six thrown in there, which talks about this mixing of fallen angels and humans. And then we have references in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is going to have uh, his holy uh, restraining power removed somewhat, at least. You put all that together and it could be that what happened in the days before the flood is going to be resumed. Yes, and demons being released from the abyss. And the identity of those demons we'll talk about in just a moment. But let's read in verse 2. He opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. Now, guys, this in my mind proves, and I don't know why people are so hesitant to say this out loud, because, but I think hell is in the earth. And I think this proves it because this says, this doesn't say the hell is way out in outer space or another dimension. It says when the abyss, which is in the ground, when it opens up, smoke goes up and covers the sun. So this is a shaft. This is a pit in the earth. And since these are, you know, not symbols, these are real entities, demonic entities coming out. Where are they coming from? They're coming from the pit. And the pit is referenced all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the book of Jude. 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2 have references to Tartarus, which is interesting because Tartarus finds a place in Greek mythology. Now, Greek mythology obviously is not authoritative. Okay, um, it, The worship of pagan gods is spoken against clearly in the Bible, Old and New Testaments. But I want you to consider something. Um, even ancient Greek mythologists and historians would say that there is some historical basis to myths. And so they would say like this person named Zeus. Yeah, we worship Zeus as a God, but there was literally a guy named Zeus. There was a king named Zeus. And there were some Greeks who actually believed that over time, um, these historical characters were imbued with characteristics. And eventually they took the place of a God in the people's mindset in that culture. And there could be truth to that because... The ancient Jews, whenever they interacted with Greek pagans, they would say, you know, all these gods that you worship, okay, they're explained by the Bible. They would say, when we're talking about spiritual beings, those are demons, okay, those are fallen angels. When you're talking about like people such as Hercules or Perseus, who are sort of like in between, you know, that's explained by Genesis 6. And so the Jews often pointed that out. And in fact, it influenced their translation of things. Um, the... Greek translation in Genesis 6 employs terms that are also used in Greek mythology. Um, whenever Josephus refers to the giants, he calls them titans, which have a place in mythology. So obviously the mythology is, is decorated and it has been added to and taken away from. But at the very base of it, you clear away all the other stuff, you have some kernels of truth. And so the idea among the Greeks and the Romans that there is a literal place in the center of the earth where the worst spiritual beings, the enemies of the gods. They are housed there. There's some truth to that because the Bible basically sets its seal to that and says, yes, there, there's an abyss in the center of the earth. And I, I don't want to go beyond that, like the compartments and all that stuff. That's too much. Okay. But the idea that there, there is a prison of demons in the center of the earth and it's going to be released or opened so that they are released. That is scriptural. Now it says out of the smoke, locusts upon the earth. 
unto them was given power. Again, this is all within God's sovereign control here. As the scorpions of the earth have power, and that no doubt references the fact they're able to sting, just a scorpion sting. I've never been stung by a scorpion, but I've been told that they hurt really bad. I saw a scorpion before. Yeah. Yeah, Pappy's Farm's got a lot of scorpions down there, <laughs> but I've never been stung by one, but they're very painful, and the sting has a lingering effect, is what I've been told. Um, Wendy, is that true? It hurts like heck, and it, it's about like a wasp sting. It's, it's not good, and that's a tiny one. Yeah. Imagine if they were bigger. Imagine a massive one. And we don't know how big these are. They're called locusts. I don't know if that's a reference to their size. It's certainly not a reference to their appearance because when you look at the way they're described, if you were to take a locust and you were to take this description, you'd be like, uh, uh, I don't really see the comparison there. I'm a grasshopper locust okay. or a cicada locust. Because a cicada locust is a really locust. I don't know. I, I would assume... Well, well, let's read it. It says um, in verse number four, it, it was commanded that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree. Other judgments have already done that. But only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Specifically, the seal of God is given to the 144,000. But I don't think it would be unreasonable to infer that this applies to those who are saved. Uh, but let's move on. It says to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days men shall seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire death, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. On their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair, locusts don't have hair, they had hair as the hair of a woman, and their teeth was like the teeth of lions. Locusts don't have teeth like lions. It says they had breastplates, as it were, of iron. The sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots, uh, of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, not like locusts. And there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. So we don't know how big these are. We know that they're called locusts because they swarm. Okay, imagine looking at this shaft that opens up in the earth. It's going to be in a certain place on the earth. Where exactly it's located, we don't know, but it will open, okay? And there will be smoke. <laughs> there are lots of different places we can speculate. Like we think the the portal to hell is in that place, <laughs> you know. But when the shaft opens up and smoke goes up, they're going to come out. They're all going to have a, the same appearance, okay? So they're they're moving together as a swarm, and they're going to be led by kings. So they're swarming over the earth like locusts do. They're not going to be eating anything like regular locusts. They're not, they're not affecting agriculture. They're stinging people, specifically those that don't have this seal. Uh, so that's the comparison there. Locusts swarm, uh, locusts devour. In their own way, they're going to swarm and they're going to devour over the earth. And they're being led by Satan. And they're being led by Satan. Now, I don't know if some people speculate that these locusts could be very, very small. So small that you could compare it to sort of like, a, you know, chemical or biological warfare. You can't see it. You know, it affects people on an unseen level. Some people think these are not small. They're, you know, they're like any other angel depicted in scripture. Yes. Now he was able to see it. The question is, will other people be able to see it? I can't see any reason why not. Again, putting things in context, the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit has been removed by this point. Okay. And we know that the devil is going to be on like 
he is going to amp up spiritual deception, appearing to people. He does appear on occasion. It says the devil can appear as an angel of light. He's limited in how much he can do that. He's limited in what he can do. He's going to be doing that a lot. It wouldn't surprise me if you could literally see these things flying around, whether they're small, whether they're the size of a horse, like they're described here. I don't know, but it's going to be a terrifying time to live in. Some people think they could be drones. Uh, You'll see a lot of drawn images that are creepy. And so the the problem that I have with the view, and this is something that does come up. The reason that um, I have a problem with the view that this is man-made technology is because it comes out of hell. So now if you were to say that these are demon-made drones and they're somehow possessed by demons, then okay. Yeah. But I I think that they are literal demons um, because they come out of the abyss. These are not sent by a warring nation against another nation. These are. It doesn't say they have wings. It does. It does. Their wings are like the sound of cheering. Yes. So they they have wings. What their wings look like, it doesn't really go beyond that. Um, But it does go on. And it says in verse 11 that unlike locusts, they do have a king over them. Okay. They do have an appointed leader. And this, this king is the angel of the bottomless pit. Now, who is that? Who's the angel of the bottomless pit? Some people think that this angel who is called Apollyon in Greek and Abaddon in Hebrew, it means destroyer in English. Some people think that this angel is distinct from the devil. They would say that Apollyon is like a general who serves the devil and he dwells in the the abyss. However, a number of Greek scholars who I agree with argue that when John is saying the angel of the bottomless pit, The Greek is referring us back to someone who's already been introduced. This is not just any angel of the bottomless pit, but this is the angel that I've already talked about. Well, who's the angel already talked about? Verse one, I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. So the character who's leading the locust is the same one who was given authority to open the bottomless pit. So given the similarity between, you know, in Luke, when it talks about after the, the 72 is 72, right? 72 who went out and were casting out demons. Okay. I thought so. I always get it. 70, 72, but 72, they come back. And when they come back, they're talking about how they cast out demons. And Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And again, that's similar to this passage. That's similar to Isaiah 14. Since this angel is not explicitly stated to be in the pit when it's opened, this could very well be the devil himself. And I I think it fits just because it's not saying it is the devil. Okay. Given him that title doesn't mean that it's not. Think about how many titles are given to Christ and to God in this book that are not given elsewhere. Okay, so the idea of the devil being given a title that suits him makes perfect sense. Just as Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the true one. Uh, Okay, all these titles are given to Jesus. There's a title given to the devil, too. And his title is Abaddon, Apollyon, Destroyer. And it's interesting that if you go and you look at what Paul has to say about the Antichrist, he is called the son of, it's, it's a slightly different form of the word, but he does say, okay, more or less, that the Antichrist is the son of Apollyon, the son of destruction. Many people take that to mean he's the son of destruction in the sense that he will experience destruction. That's true. He will bring destruction into the world. That's true. But it could be literal. He literally could be the son of the devil in some sense. Um, 
bizarre, I know, but Revelation is a bizarre book. And so let's look at a few references and then we're going to wrap it up because we won't cover all of it today. Let's. Is the devil the same as Lucifer? Yes, yes, I think so. Absolutely. There are some people. Liberal scholars would dispute that. But if you study Second Temple Judaism, the identification of Satan with the character in Isaiah 14 was super common during that time. So given that context, when Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, it's impossible given all of that context, all the evidence to not see Jesus making the same connection. So Jesus would have us say, yes, Isaiah 14. I think that it does deal with a human ruler, a ruler of Babylon. I think it goes beyond that though. Uh, just as we have many places in the book of Daniel where you have the prince of Persia. Well, there's an actual prince of Persia. There's an actual ruler, a human ruler of Persia. But then there is a demonic entity at work behind that. And so in the same way, we have the king of Babylon, the prince of Babylon. But behind them, there is another character at work, and that is Lucifer. Lucifer, of course, would refer to him in all of his, his beauty and his wisdom. Uh, those were things that characterized him before his fall, while he can take on a beautiful appearance. Uh, Lucifer, it seems to describe someone who was really high and fell from that, that place of being exalted. And so um, he's not Lucifer anymore. He may esteem himself that way. Um, he may want people to worship him as an exalted being. And one day he will be worshiped as an exalted being. They'll probably call him Lucifer and Revelation. Uh, in fact, you have many Luciferian groups you have many branches of the occult where they refer to him as Lucifer. They don't look to him as Satan. Satan means enemy. To them, he's not the enemy. To him, Yahweh, God of the Bible, is the enemy. They they flip-flop it's it. The, okay. There's that series on Netflix, whoever it's on, and what's called Lucifer. Yeah, it is. It's right? called Lucifer. And it, and they flip it where they basically make it out like Satan is misunderstood. He's a bad boy, but he's really not That's that right. bad, you know? That's definitely something that we should take seriously as Christians. Anytime, anytime Satan introduces deception, he does, he does tread lightly because he knows that, especially in an American, yes, in the American culture, uh, we are, whether we realize it or not, we have been influenced by the Bible and the devil realizes that he realized that. Adam and Eve were influenced by the word of God. So when he approached them, he used subtlety. So we have a biblical moral foundation, whether we acknowledge Yes, exactly. And so he knows he's not going to be able to deceive the masses in America just by coming right out and saying, hey, I'm the devil, worship me. He's got to try to correct in his mind, okay, correct the narrative to where he is the one who should be worshipped. He's the one who, yes, yes, and God is the tyrant. That's the kind of agenda that he's pushing. Yeah, yeah there, the there's. Of it. They made excuses for her choice to do evil. It's very like, annoying whenever they take kids' stories like that, yeah. which historically these fairy tales were meant to, even in Christian cultures, were meant to clearly the delineate. Yes. Bad, you got a bad guy, you yes. got a good guy. Yes. Now they're taking all the historic bad guys and they're making them good guys. Exactly. So, you know, as Christians, we see it coming a mile away, and that's why we should share this with people. But I want to read a couple of verses that help us identify. I believe. These locusts. Now, in Joel chapter 2, it mentions these locusts too. Okay, so it talks about the same judgment. It is in the Old Testament. We're not going to Joel 2 right now, though. You can read the whole chapter if you want. I want you to go to 2 Peter 2. Okay, 2 Peter 2. And we're going to look at 
what he has to say there. And we're going to look at two other verses on top of that. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, it says in verse 4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then it mentions Sodom and Gomorrah too. And of course, this is historically chronological. He's just moving on. Uh, so the first sin is he spared not the angels that sin. This can't be a reference to all the angels that sin because they're still deceiving people. Okay, they're, they're still wandering the earth. But there is one group in particular that is chained in hell. Why this one group? Why this one group? Now, it does not tell us here other than it gives you a hint that this took place before the flood came upon the world. Okay, so we could say this is not a sin that came after the flood. It's a sin before the flood. Is this the original fall? Is this something that happens like subsequent to that? Um, well, we got to look at some other verses for that. In Jude. In my translation, yes. it says down into Tartarus. Into Tartarus, yes. Tartarus is the Greek word used there. Hell is a word that's more familiar to uh, Christian English speakers and readers. That's why that term was chosen. But uh, if you are aware of Greek myth, Tartarus, you're going to know what that is. That's the deepest place in the underworld. So that's like a prison within the prison. That would be like maximum security in prison. That's where these solitary confinement. Yeah, this is where uh, the angels that send are kept. But why are they there? Why is the devil roaming? Why does he have many other angels that serve him? They're roaming. That's a good... That's a good uh, theory right there. But let's look at Jude. And I think that this gives confirmation of that theory. But in Jude, verse number six, it says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of that great day. Now notice, unto the judgment of that great day. Many people think this refers to he holds them until he will judge them. However, if one carefully reads this, that great day is a reference to the day of the Lord. When does the day of the Lord begin? After the rapture. So this means that they are kept and reserved for a purpose until they are released during the tribulation. Now, again, I think we could look at Revelation chapter nine and say, oh, that's them. Okay, Revelation chapter 9 speaks of two different groups of demons. We'll talk about the second group next week. But the first group, the locusts, okay, it, it seems to match what we're reading in Jude. But what did these angels do that was so bad? It tells you in verse 7 of Jude. Even as, that means just like Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. What? How can angels be similar to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who went after strange flesh or strange flesh? Excuse me, my mouth starting to get a little dry. But uh, going after strange flesh, the sin of homosexuality that is described in Genesis uh, for Sodom and Gomorrah. These angels did something similar to that, something comparable to it. We have one last passage, and then we're going to go to Genesis chapter six to wrap it up. First Peter three. 1 Peter 3. So 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude, they all use similar language. If you actually take the Greek of these verses and compare them, it's impossible not to see the similarity. Either you have to say the Holy Spirit <laughs> guided them to use the exact same Greek vocab, or Peter and Jude were aware of each other's writings. Both of those make sense. 
So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now, what this is referring to is when Jesus closed his eyes on the cross, whenever he died, he was awakened to the spiritual realm and in the spirit by which also he went, it says, he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. So there are spirits in prison. What are these spirits in particular? Well, in verse number 20, it says, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing. So when did they sin? In the days of Noah. So we have Jude saying their sin was fornication, angels committing fornication in some sense. Second Peter two says that they sinned before the days of Noah. Okay. Or before the flood rather here, it says that it was while the ark was a uh, being prepared by Noah. So again, go back to Genesis six. Is there anything in the book of Genesis before the flood that sounds vaguely similar to this? Yes, there is. In verse number one of Genesis six, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, that is a catchphrase in Hebrew, B'nai Elohim, it's used in Job chapter one, and it's a reference to angelic beings there. The devil was one of the B'nai Elohim. The sons of God saw the daughters of men. The word men there in Hebrew is Adam. Daughters of Adam, human women, the sons of God saw the daughters of Adam, that they were fair and took them wives, all of which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that. He is also flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. This sin was so heinous in the eyes of God that God said, that's where I'm drawing the line. 120 years is all I'm giving mankind to repent from this. This seems to imply that the sin that the demons were involved in was reciprocated by humans. Humans were involved in this themselves. So the idea, think of like ancient mythology among the Egyptians. Right. The idea of the Pharaoh saying, we are offspring of the gods, and they bragged about it. They worshiped the gods, but yet they saw themselves as, you know, descendants of them. So this was not just a random isolated incident. This is idolatry. No doubt fallen angels are appearing as gods. They're claiming to be gods. They're beautiful. They're powerful. I mean, imagine if you were to see an angel, look at how like John revelation. When he sees an angel, he falls down as if dead. You see these exalted celestial beings appear and they were worshiped by them. And they want your daughter as a wife. And yes. And it was probably considered an honor for your daughter to marry one of these beings, because that would mean that in your family, you have this grandchild who is an object of worship, who will be no doubt revered and be given power. And all those who are close to them will also share in that power. So this was something that, um, it was, it was world shaping. Again, this wasn't just isolated incident. This completely reshaped the atmosphere religious before the flood. In, in, in India, um, they, there was the, the, I'm sure they still have it, where the, the families would give their children their to the, God. To, to the temple mm -hmm. to be temple children. Yes, yes. And <laughs> all of that. And that's where, um, what's the lady's name? Carmichael went in and was saving, trying to save all the kids. Yeah, could. it was, cons it's From considered that. an honor yes. to do those things. And so we can, we can understand from that, yeah. you know, from our post flood experience, we can see how something like that could happen just on a, another level yeah. before the flood. 
But here it clearly says that these children were not natural. In verse four, there were giants in the earth in those days. This is not just happening at the same time. It's connected. It says also after that, after the flood, the guy who's writing this is Moses, the same guy who at Kedesh Barnea, okay, heard the report of those Nephilim. He's the guy writing this right here. He's saying there were some before and there were some after. Um, and as far as those that came after, I think the second group of demons in Revelation 9 relate to them in some way. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. But it says, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, then they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. These are mighty men. They're great warriors. They're very violent. They're physically gigantic. And they're men of renown, which means stories are told about them for generations to come. So all of these myths, and I think this is really... Hercules, uh, it's interesting that if you go to Books Million and Barnes and Noble, there is like a renaissance of interest in mythology, Norse mythology in particular, Vikings, but Greek mythology, Roman mythology, books are being published about it. Books about how to worship these gods are being published as well. And so whenever a Christian studies this, it equips us with the ability to correct the narrative instead of simply discounting it all together, because that's what a lot of Christians will do. They'll say all of the mythology is just stupid. It's all made up. It's all nonsense. It's imaginary, but it's not. Some of it is rooted in biblical pre-flood history. And if you can show people that, then you can say, look, you're not wrong that these beings really exist. You're not wrong that they're super powerful, but you're wrong. If you think that they're going to win, Okay. And so this is the way the ancient Christians did evangelism. When they approached someone about their gods, they generally didn't deny that their gods existed. They just denied your interpretation of them. They're not really gods. You know that we're not saying they're not real beings, but they're not really gods. There's only one God and that's the God of the Bible. And so we as Christians, you know, understanding this issue, a very controversial one, by the way, I know some people who are listening to this may not agree, but when you take Genesis six, first Peter three, second Peter two and Jude and revelation nine, and you put them together, you can't not see the connections. And so I think that's probably why the traditional view of the Nephilim has the most going for it. But um, we'll talk more about that next week as we dive deeper into Revelation 9. Thank you for listening. Bye.